Well, after singing that, let's go to Isaiah and be brought to another of the servant songs uh, from this great book. You might be thinking, where did Matthew go in terms of our general study? Matthew's still there waiting for us, uh, but I started this series of the servant songs during Christmas, and uh, there, were f- there were four of them. Um, if you want to include Isaiah 61, there are five, but four classic servant songs, and we have taken this long to get to servant song number four. It's Isaiah 52, um, leading us to Isaiah 53. My burden this morning is to take a song from Isaiah, a prophetic song, and bring it near to your heart. It's the gospel from the Old Testament. This is uh, Isaiah 52, but, but leading into 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the most um, sort of validating passages in all of the, New, the Old Testament to tell us that Scripture is true, that Scripture is real, that Jesus, whom we have pledged our loyalty to, is the right Messiah. Isaiah 53 has so many references from the Old Testament, from 700 years B.C., that absolutely, with immaculate precision, connect to what happened when Jesus came, that it's unmistakably inspired prophecy that was fulfilled. So much so that it affected the New Testament writers that are filled with uh, references. The New Testament is filled from their writings from Isaiah 53. The, the connections are classic, are powerful, are unmistakable, and they validate the inspiration of Scripture, and they validate that we have the true Christ. But more than this, just being a profound chapter of the Bible for us to go through, and we're going to go through it. I sort of have organized it, though it's so deep and detailed that we could spend a year there. We're going to take you know a few moments and, and survey through it, but I packaged it for us to to understand, but more than this, just being a Bible study, this is a challenge for you to take the gospel from the Old Testament and bring it near to your heart for your own soul's sake, for encouragement. It's been said that we're supposed to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Um, What a challenge. How important is that for the Christian to... Be warm to the gospel with regularity. It's very important. In fact, I could gauge my own life or your life in terms of the question, how important is the gospel to you? Is it moving you today? Is it moving through you today? And wherever you are in terms of coldness to the gospel or warmness to the gospel, that kind of tells you where you are spiritually today. If it matters, is it meaningful? Is it something that is applied to your life where the pain of the guilt of your sin is being absorbed and helped? We all feel guilty for sins that are committed in the heart. Even after you become a Christian, they they pile up, don't they? And the guilt of your sin piles up. And the the way to help your heart in that moment where you feel hopeless over a sin that just won't let go or you won't let go of, the, the answer to that is the gospel and bringing it near to your heart. The cross is the instrument 
that God uses to give us the promise of health and hope. Think of it. Everybody is living their life measuring it in terms of when they're going to die or how healthy they are right now or the life that they wish that they would have lived that they still might still live in their lifetime. But what happens when you understand the gospel is you're living not just for now, but you're living life through eternity. The gospel solves the problem of death. The gospel solves the problem of being afraid to die. On the other side, in heaven, you realize that there's no punishment for you because it's been absorbed in the gospel, the cross. It calibrates your priorities. It makes you live for things that you wouldn't normally live for. It opens the timeline of your life into eternity. People measure their life in terms of the years that they're here breathing. They measure their life in terms of the good old days that they lived that they wish they were still in. But the gospel makes your life defined in terms of the future. You say, but I still feel the curse of my sin. I still feel fallen in my own heart. I feel hopeless or empty. Well, a text like this that we're going to go through is the gospel And it's meant to help you and help your own soul find joy in the Lord so you're not hopeless. Let me just read to you what John Owen, the great Puritan of old, said about applying the gospel to your own soul. He said this, This is faith's great and bold venture upon the grace, the truth of God, to stand by the cross and say, Ah, He is bruised for my sins and wounded for my transgressions. In the chastisement of peace, my peace is upon him. He is thus made sin for me. Here I give up my sins to him that is able to bear them, to undergo them. He requires it of my hands that I should be content, that he should should undertake for them. And that I heartily consent unto, this is every day's work. I know not how any peace can be maintained with God without it. We've been in this study of these servant songs. And this particular song is meant to be sung right into your heart. You're to sing or to meditate upon this gospel chapter in a way that it's not just learning a book of the Bible or just reading through a big profound portion of the Bible to just read it or know it or think about it. It's something instead that should be applied regular with regularity to your own heart. I think sometimes we should ask ourselves this question, why can't I let go of this particular sin or why does this sin still hang on to me? Is the problem with the gospel or is the problem that you haven't taken the gospel close to your own heart? And I think it's the latter. It's not just whether or not you're a Christian. That's the starting point. It's once you are a Christian that you need the gospel for your soul's sake to be rich. This is hope. Um, You remember the context of Israel. They, They needed hope. They needed these servant songs. And it's 700 BC when Isaiah is on the scene and he's saying these things. God, the Holy Spirit, through Isaiah, is saying these things about Jesus. These servant songs where the Lord God is 
speaking through Isaiah about the son. And the things that I'm going to unpack for you are written in a way as if they've already happened. They're about what the son of God has already done for believers. That's an amazing thought. 700 years before Jesus was even to be born, these are being said, stated, or sung so that the Israelite can have hope in a person and go, this Messiah is going to for sure accomplish these things on my behalf. I want you to look through the eyes of an Israelite at the son who was to come. This is hope. So we're coming to Isaiah 52 at the close here in verses 13 through 15. And this is the section that begins our servant song. And it goes into Isaiah 53. It's the final servant song. And it's basically full of gospel truth from the Old Testament. It's been called the Romans of the Old Testament. It's an amazing text that many New Testament authors have quoted. I won't go into the quotations, but there are so many references from the New Testament that validate how profoundly moving this text was for their own hearts. Matthew 18, 17, Mark 15, 28, Luke 22, 37, John 12, 38, Acts 8, which is the Ethiopian eunuch encounter, encounter with Philip, Acts 8, 28 to 35, Romans 10, 16, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. These are all quoting from this great text. Mark 9, 12, Romans 4, 25, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, 1 Peter 1, 19, and 1 John 3, 5, all make an intersection with this great chapter. It's so Christological, it's so powerful that the Jews who were rejecting Christ historically strip out Jesus from Isaiah 53, and they actually interpret Isaiah 53 as a prophecy just about Israel, not the Lord Jesus, but this is unmistakably about Christ. And so if you're taking notes, we're preaching the servant song to our own soul by looking at three sections of this song. It's preaching the servant song to your own soul if you're taking notes, and point one is the gospel landscape, the gospel landscape. This is the big picture of the gospel from the Old Testament. Look at verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished as you, at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. This is the gospel landscape. This is the first part of the gospel. Um, I call it a landscape or like think of a mountain vista of the gospel. It's like you can see it all in one snapshot, just a few verses. It's good. It's important to see the big picture of the gospel. To understand it. It's the servant song in the biggest of big pictures. It's the gospel painted with broad strokes, not just the fine strokes that were of, of a painting that we're going to look at in a minute. This is Isaiah saying that the gospel is a completed mission. The Lord, I should say, through Isaiah, saying, I, my son wins in the end. 
There's no doubt who Messiah is, and there's no doubt about his mission that was accomplished. Look at verse 13. This is the Messiah's exaltation. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's the Old Testament version of Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the end, Jesus wins. He dies, he's buried, he rises, he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of at the end of days how the Father will exalt the Son high and lift it up. He wins. It says that he acts wisely. That could be interpreted as prospering. Jesus sowed a perfect life. And in sowing a perfect life, he will reap exaltation. We go quickly to the next verse, though, that takes a step back to Messiah's humiliation. Not only do we have exaltation, we have humiliation. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What's this referencing? This is where Christ was bludgeoned before, beaten, and then crucified on the cross. He didn't even look human. He didn't look of any semblance to humanity. He was so marred. The world was incredulous at Jesus. They were astonished at him. He didn't fit the profile of a leader who's just in his flesh conquering and unbeatable. Well, Jesus was beaten at the cross in humiliation. He was breaking the mold, you could say, of what it looked like to be a winning leader at that point. He was offensive in his message And in his ministry, people didn't want what he said. They didn't like what he did. He hung out with tax collectors, with sinners, with those who were the immoral, those who were the detestable, those who were ceremonially unclean. He connected with those people. He healed those people. He ministered and was associated with those people. They beat him for this. They mocked him. They scourged him to the point where he didn't look human. Humiliation is the prologue for his exaltation. On the cross, though, this text goes on to say that there was an impact in the world. Look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle. This is a picture of the blood of Christ covering the nations. Now, this is not a picture of universalism. Universalism wrongly teaches that God covers or atones the entire world. So the whole world is atoned for and then gives a little bit of an out to say only those who reject this atonement are the ones who go to hell. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God's atonement is for all believers. It's a redemption that is accomplished and applied at the cross to anyone who would believe. It's the atoning work, but in the sense that Christ's blood is sprinkled to many nations. Think in terms of accountability. God reaches the whole world. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. But only those who believe in him won't perish. And so the sprinkled blood is the offer to the whole world for all of the nations. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, anyone from anywhere in the world at any time who believes will be saved. And there's a clear dividing line at the cross. There's a crossroads for decision to be made. And it says that 
Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. They're left without an excuse, in other words, all the way to a king. And everybody underneath is left without excuse if they turn away from Christ. It says, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. There'll be some eyes that are opened in the end and some ears that hear in the end where people believe. Even kings will be believing. But again, at the name of Jesus, those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, those who are believers secure in heaven, and even unbelievers who have rejected Christ in hell will be in hell, but they will see and hear with clarity who Jesus really is. This is the landscape of the gospel. Let me just test your heart for a second. Is this enough to keep you from sinning? Is this enough to kind of curb your appetite for what you really want from the world? Is this Bible study enough to help your heart flee from temptation? Is this enough to warm your heart to Jesus where you say, I really love Jesus most of all? Well, it is scripture and it is sufficient, but it is just the first part of the song. And I want to make the case that we need the whole song for our hearts to be warmed up. That's why it's given to us as a unit. The first part of the song is the landscape, the big picture But the big picture is, think of it like soft, wet concrete that needs to be poured into another mold, poured into our hearts on a deeper level, where it it reaches us with sensitivities, where our hearts can be made warm and soft. And that comes by looking at this, not just in terms of a landscape, but now by way of a story. And that's the gospel story. That's Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. We're moving from the big picture to the story. Listen as I read this story. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is a story. The story begins with what I've called the ultimate question. So it's the gospel story. It's unit two in this song. And it begins with the ultimate question. It's really a two-sided coin of two questions that are asking the same thing. Who's believed? 
what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Belief in the Lord's work of revealing go hand in hand. The question is, who's believed? Isn't it obvious that this is the Messiah? Well, it should be. It should have been. Our hard-heartedness rejects Jesus until we are touched by the Holy Spirit. The second question really answers the first. Who's believed? Well, the ones who believe are the ones whom the Spirit has revealed Jesus to be worth believing in. <laughs> it's just crazy like that. You go, why do I tell people about Jesus and they, it still doesn't click? Why do I want to pray to Jesus and other people don't? Well, it has to do with whether or not you're still lost in your sins. Whether or not someone has had the Spirit of God touch their heart and open up their hearts to see Jesus for who he really is. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man will not receive the things of the Spirit of God. There's their foolishness to him. It's just foolhardy to believe in Jesus, someone you can't see, someone you can't audibly hear, somebody you, what, that was here on earth 2,000 years ago. Why does that person matter? Well, he matters because the Holy Spirit has revealed that person to you. In Isaiah 6, we know that Isaiah, when he was called to preach, he was called to preach Jesus. He, uh, he was promised that a, most people would not hear, would not listen, would not see him for who he was. Preach so that they'll keep rejecting, so they'll keep having blind eyes and deaf ears to the message. But God does reveal himself to the remnant. And this is what revelation looks like. This is what it looks like to fall in love with Jesus. This is the gospel story. Listen to this. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Most everybody in the world will ultimately ignore Jesus. They might know about him, but they will look at him more as a, the peasant and commoner that he was as he grew up. He had no striking features for the world to worship him in a fleshly way. He's like a little plant, a little sapling that came up out of the ground that people, they might acknowledge him, they might contend with him, they might wrestle with what he said, but to actually fall in love with him is a whole different story altogether. He was despised and rejected. He, this commoner, walked amongst the people, maybe similar to Mark Twain's Prince and the Pauper theme where you have him as a king who's in pauper's garments, a commoner's garment, walking around, born in Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth, a, a carpenter's son, walking around, and he's God on earth, and people aren't really understanding who he is. This is the story that we know of the gospel. He's called the arm of the Lord, verse 1. He's the right arm of God. He's second member of the Trinity, and yet he's this young plant, this root out of the dry ground with no majesty and no beauty. Though we know he's majestic, we know he's the king of kings. On the outside, it didn't look like anything. The ultimate question is met with an unexpected um, arrival. He's sublimated in poverty. Verse 3 is so striking that before you know Jesus on a personal level, you reject him. Look at verse 3. And one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. People didn't want him. They don't want the message of Jesus. I think it's important to see that 
Jesus was, verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's fully human. He felt this rejection. To think of Jesus as anything less than fully human, though he is God, is to have a less than biblical Jesus. Jesus actually feels the pain of rejection. He feels the pain and the grief. He's grief-stricken by people not wanting him. He is emotional. We feel this emotion as he was tempted in every way in his humanity, yet without sin, fully human nature. And so Jesus, who answers the ultimate question, he comes with an unexpected arrival, goes on an unspeakable mission, and that's verses 4 through 6. Listen to what he did. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Stop there. Jesus went on an incredible mission on our behalf. He's grief-stricken by those who've rejected him, by those who despise him, by those who hide their face from Jesus, and yet he goes on the mission anyway. He's grief-stricken, but he bears our griefs. He bears our sorrows. Look at the blame that's put on Jesus in verse 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Now, I want you to enter into the language here. I've said this already, but this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah in past tense about a Messiah who was still yet to be born 700 years later. Do you get that? And it's as if it's already happened. So there's a lot going on here. God is outside of time and space, and it's very profound to understand that this mission was going to happen. It was a fait accompli, and it, it was as if in the mind of God it's already happened on behalf of Israel. An Israel who would reject Jesus. Do you see this? Yet we esteemed him stricken. Meaning, what Jesus had coming to him was because of what Jesus did. He should have never said he was the son of God. He should have never said he was Messiah. He should have never hung out with ceremonially unclean people. He should have never done the good things that he said he was doing. Those things warranted him being crucified and executed as a criminal. And it says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, or to be chastised by God and afflicted. He deserved to go on the cross. Who said that? Well, Isaiah is saying that Israel would say that and was speaking as if they already had, but I would include the we to all of humanity. So guess what? You and I are culpably responsible. Before we become Christians, we're culpably responsible for what the crowd said where they said, crucify him. It's as if you and I were there saying, give us Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. We don't want this do-gooder who says he's like God. We don't want him. We're saying you, Jesus, deserve death on the cross. That's some wild language and some wild things going on in a song like this. This is our responsibility for putting him on the cross with our sin and our sinful attitudes behind our sin. It's where this kind of accusation comes from. But notice how in verse 5, the Lord in his song stops all of this in its tracks. Okay, at the crowds, we're accusing Jesus. 
You deserve to go to the cross. And then things switch in a moment's notice in verse five to Christ's motive for going to the cross. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You're the ones accusing him. He goes to the cross anyway. And why did he go? He went to the cross to bear your sin, to be pierced or run through by those Roman nails, by the spear in his side for your sins, to be crushed for our iniquities, for everything we've done wrong. The the accusations, as well as any sin against God, all of that was put on Jesus. This chastisement, this punishment that you deserved was put on my son and done so for a very real reason. Number one, to bring you peace. And number two, to heal your wounds. Peace with God. We were at war with God. And then because Jesus died on the cross, we're at peace with God. We were in wartime. Two nations fighting each other. We, we can picture that in our own mind's eye with what's going on in the world. Bullets and bombs flying around, people dying, bloodshed. This is the the picture of where we were with God because of our sin and rebellion. And then there's a declaration of peace made on our behalf because of the cross. Because Jesus, though accused, died for you anyway. He was accused by you and then he dies for you anyway. This is the gospel story that needs to be poured in your heart. We've learned the landscape. Jesus wins in the end. The mouths of kings will be shut. I mean, Psalm 2, the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs when they conspire against him. He's shutting their mouths. We get all that. We understand that. Now let's pour this very sympathetically into your heart through this story that should be stirring. He's given you peace with God. He's given you peace in your hearts. And then he's also healed your wounds, meaning all of what sin does in damaging your spiritual life is healed by the cross. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it means you can find a sympathetic, loving Savior to heal your conscience for what you've done. And not only that, one day we know we'll find in the resurrection full restoration with our bodies. They'll be either cremated or buried in the ground, but one day all those atomic molecules will be rounded together and we will be, according to 1 Corinthians 15, something that is similar to what we were before, but far different. And it's amazing that we will be completely healed in heaven. No more dying, no more crying, no more suffering, no more demon attack. All those things are gone in heaven. This is the unspeakable mission that's been accomplished on our behalf What do we do in light of that? Look at verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a summary statement of our experience compared to Christ. It's amazing to think in terms of how we're accusing him. We were the ones who put him on the cross. He died for us anyway. The testimony of Christ is impeccable and perfect. What's your testimony and my testimony? We like sheep have gone astray. We're like the little kid running from the parent with medicine. <laughs> Look, just come take the medicine. It'll make you better. You know, come and, and let me bandage this open wound to, wound to heal it up and keep it from getting affected. No, I don't want it. I want to run away. And what God offers to every believer 
or every unbeliever is the grace of the gospel and like his children running, it's like a parent saying, there's amazing grace waiting for you. And he, as an unconditional parent, does this for you. We're running away. I mean, Romans 3 says, uh, you know, all, all have sinned and, and we're, we're running from God. He subdued you. You're running away and he, he, he gathers you and cuts you off and brings you back to himself. That's the grace of the gospel. That's what we see here. We, like sheep, have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's saying, you know what? You don't want me to die for your sins, but I'm going to capture you and die for you nevertheless. I'm going to save you in spite of your running. That's like an unconditionally loving parent. We would run from grace at every turn like sheep wandering away from God's accountability. Romans 3, no one seeks after God, I should say. We all turn to our own way, and yet he subdues and brings us to himself. This is the ultimate question being answered, the unexpected arrival of Christ where people despised and rejected him, the unspeakable mission that Jesus went on where we accuse him, but he died for us anyway. And then his unparalleled character that's on display in verses seven through nine. This is Jesus' attitude and actions and character on display going to the cross. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is convicting to me as I stand. When life gets hard, when you don't eat, what you should eat, or you don't sleep as you believe you should sleep, or life takes a turn on you, something's, the rug is yanked out from under you. I mean, I could go into, you know, personal anecdotes and experiences, even from like yesterday, you know, you go, wow, this happened. And it just, it, it makes you want to give verbiage to that. It makes you want to say something, you know, and I'm not saying, saying the worst of things, but just complain about it. Just bark about it. Uh, Jesus had Going to the cross, he was resolved to go. And this is where we want to be spiritually. We want to follow Jesus' character in this. A lamb led to the slaughter, resolved to go on God's mission, resolved to die for his accusers, resolved to not complain about it, resolved to not live in regret, resolved to die under God's perfect saving plan as the lamb of God. What did he say? He quoted the Psalms. What did he do? He forgave those who were killing him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's forgiving. He's speaking Psalms. He's committing his spirit to his father. Resigned to save. Saw our first Peter 2, 23. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 8. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is the shame of the cross, the incredulous nature of what had happened. And as for a generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, that's the generation of the Israelites. While Messiah is there, they're considering him as cut off. He should be, he should be crucified outside of the city at Golgotha. We, we, we just despise him that much. He's cut off, stricken for the transgression of my people. I mean, the, 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 
the Lord is saying this as if, how can this even be? Why would the, the sinless Savior be cut off in this way? And then verse 9, they made him his grave with the wicked. He died by way of execution between two criminals. It's the death of Christ, the shame of the cross. And yet the precise prediction of him being buried with a rich man and with a rich man in his death. What does that mean? It means he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. How precise is that, by the way? I mean, we could say, well, that, you know... I guess that could happen where there's an illusion 700 years B.C. through the prophet of Isaiah that the Lord spoke about the fact that Messiah would be buried in the rich man's tomb, but it actually happened. It's incredible to tie that together and to see the precision of Scripture there and the fulfillment that, of prophecy that this is our Messiah. He was dignified as truly royal because he was buried in a rich man's tomb, vindicated with unparalleled character. There was, again, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. He was buried, executed, shamed, though he had done nothing violent with no deception whatsoever. So is this, let's just stop here. Let's just stop for a second. We've got a few minutes. Examine your heart. Is this enough to stop you from sinning in the way that you just really wish that you could stop? Is this enough to challenge your heart to let go of something that you've not yet been able to let go of or some sin that won't let go of you? Is, is, is this enough gospel content to be preached into your heart to help you stop sinning? Well, We've looked at the landscape, which shows the end to the beginning, and you know Christ's exaltation backs up to his humiliation. It shuts the mouths of kings. It holds the nations accountable. That's the landscape. And then we've taken this, this softened concrete of the gospel, and we begin to pour it into your heart and, and, and allowed you to sympathize with this gospel story, a question that's answered in Christ. Who's the arm of the Lord? Well, it's Jesus. It's the one who came with an unexpected um, arrival, an unspeakable mission, dying for his accusers, and then an uncompromising, unco uncompromised character, unparalleled character, I should say. I mean, it's just impeccable in all these things, but is that enough to soften your heart to stave off sin's temptation. Well, there's one final part of this song, and that's verses 10 through 12. And this is, the gospel is sovereign grace. It's a landscape, it's a story, and it's sovereign grace. And I want to challenge you to pour the concrete of this story into these molds that are, that are the footing and foundation for which you should stand on. You want the gospel to harden up as this firm foundation in your life and the way for this story that's very sympathetic, that's very passionate, that's very personal, right? You, you feel the personal level of Jesus dying for your sin in this story. You should, but it needs to be ultimately sealed up as this strong footing and foundation of doctrine that is the doctrine of sovereign grace. 
If you leave the gospel just as a story, it can be just lost and sort of flit, um, frittered away into something that's sympathetic, something that just makes you cry, something that moves you like a gospel-centered movie or a gospel-centered play. I mean, these things can move your emotions and can open you up and soften you, your heart to the Lord. And you can see that and scripture is powerful that way. But the song isn't left just as a story. It's put into this strong footing and foundation, this mold as if wet concrete is poured into for you to stand on as it hardens and solidifies solidifies in your own mind. And that's pouring the gospel story into the solid doctrines of sovereign grace. I want you to see that. Look at verse 10. This is the gospel of sovereign grace. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he, has, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So what is this? Well, let's break it down like this. It's grace. Sovereign, saving grace. The story is about Jesus dying for you, and the application is about the glory of God in dying for you. And this glory is seen through First, grace that's according to God's will. All of what would happen to Jesus when he died on the cross was according to God's sovereign plan. Do you see that in verse 10? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the Lord, Yahweh's will, the Father, who would crush his own son and put him to grief. Now, liberals would say that's too specific to believe that God the Father in his plan crushed his son. Is that some sort of divine child abuse? Well, you have to understand that God is God, and God chose his son, and the son yielded to this choice in the inner Trinitarian plan of God for the son to be the perfect lamb, the sacrificial paschal lamb that was laid on the altar and crushed on your behalf and my behalf. He's willing to do this. This is what God did for you and for me but not without hope. Look at verse 10. He's put him to grief. And then it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, in other words, when Jesus died on the cross as this offering for your guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. When will Jesus see his offspring? Jesus didn't stay dead. In the plan of God, his sovereign grace, it it pleased the Lord to crush his son but to crush his son in light of the resurrection. Jesus would die, but then would be raised and would have joy to see his offspring. Who's the offspring? That's you and me. Anyone who would ever believe is the offspring. And he shall prolong his days. Jesus is raised and stayed raised. It was the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord 
shall prosper in his hand. This was God's will that he die, be buried, and rise again. This is the doctrine of sovereign grace. And it, then it goes to grace according to God's will, and sovereign grace is defined as grace according to God's righteousness. What does that mean? It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What's the satisfaction that he sees? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus had anguish on the cross. God the Father saw this. He was satisfied with Jesus' death as a sacrifice for everyone who would believe. He made full atonement for sins. And it says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. What does that mean? This is, again, just like Romans chapter 4. It's incredible. When you were saved, your sin went on the cross and was Satisfied, it was absorbed. The wrath of God against your sin was was um, against the Son of God on the cross, and it's the great exchange. Jesus took your sin, and then He gave you His righteousness. You were counted righteous in Christ. What does that mean? It means that God looked at you because Jesus lived a perfect life and died for your sin, and said. The life that Jesus lived, I'm going to count as your life as if you lived that perfect life. It's incredible. Think of it as a legal, forensic, um, judicial declaration on your behalf. You were counted righteous. You were guilty, and now I'm saying you were completely clean. Your bank account was bankrupt, and now I'm going to make you, you know, a multi-billionaire in terms of eternal heaven. You had nothing and you were in my debt and now you have everything because I've counted you righteous in Christ. The righteousness does not come from inside of you. It is the outside of you righteousness of Christ that is gifted to you when you believe. It's amazing grace. This is what you're promised. This is what you're given. This is, this is why, again, you see the big picture of the landscape. Jesus wins. Then you feel the story of what Jesus did for you, your accusation against him, and he died for you anyway. He subdued you. He made you his son. And now you've got to understand the doctrine behind it. The Lord was behind this plan all along. He crushed his son on your behalf so that he could declare you righteous. And that's the grace of the gospel which you stand. That's where the story becomes like your every day. It's your footing and foundation. It's what you stand in. You've been counted righteous, declared righteous, made right with God forever. These are eternal and powerful declarations. He shall bear their iniquities. Look at verse 12. Therefore... I will divide him a portion with the many. This is grace according to mercy. It was grace according to God's will, grace according to God's righteousness, and grace according to God's mercy. It's Christ-focused here. Speaking of heaven, I will divide him a portion with the many. Christ will be exalted in heaven, and everyone that's with him will be a co-equal heir of Christ. That's what he means by the many here. We're numerous um, believers are there in heaven. He, will, she, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. All who are strong in heaven will enjoy this, 
this feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the riches, the inheritance of heaven were all numbered together there. Why? Because he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with you or counted with you on earth in your sin so that now he can bring you all the way to heaven. It says at the end of verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What does that mean? Just quickly. It means that you were on this side of the cliff headed to hell and he built a bridge with himself to the other side of the cliff where you go into heaven. He's the intercessor, the intermediator between God and man. He's the bridge. He's the way. He's the narrow path. He's the only way, truth, and life to heaven. It's through Christ. And that intercession is at a point in time for your salvation that then guarantees that he's there with you through your whole lifetime all the way to heaven. That intercessory work of Christ where he's your high priest, where he talks to you, where he interprets your prayers, where he knows you, where he's with you always. He is that intercessor. He is that high priest in your life. Now, this has been a very superficial overview treatment of Isaiah 53. Even though we went into some detail, Isaiah 52 at the end, to go all the way to Isaiah 53 is a big, it's a, it's a handful, it's a mouthful, it's a lot. But the reason I gave you the whole thing in one shot is so that you can have it all for your own soul. If you do nothing with it and just kind of leave it to the side, you're kind of wasting your time. I want to challenge you to think about this gospel. Think about these points. Because if you're cold to the gospel, I want to make the case that it's not the gospel's fault. (laughs) It's that, it's that you haven't brought the coal of the gospel, the hot burning coal of the gospel near to your heart as often as you should. Or in, in, in the detail that's presented here as a, as a landscape, as a story, and as sovereign declarations, sovereign grace declarations in your life. You know, Isaiah chapters 1 to 5, I was reminded this week that That was all about showing how lost Israel really was, all those woe judgments. But then Isaiah 6 is the story where the high priest, the most holy man in Israel, walks in the temple, and he is self-immolating before the holiness of God, this grand vision of Christ. And he goes, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've been around unclean people. Then the angel comes down and brings this hot coal, which is a picture of God's saving grace and mercy, and touches his lip, touches his heart, touches his tongue, and makes him right with God symbolically. That's a picture of the transforming grace of the gospel. That's what launches Isaiah into ministry. We need to preach the gospel like that to ourselves every day and bring that warm, hot, cold to our hearts so we feel the commission of God to go forward. Every one of these songs that have been sung through the book of Isaiah are those kinds of vision-like experiences where you encounter God and you're brought to the end of yourself. You need to come to the breaking point and say, God, I can't do it anymore. I can't live in my own flesh. I want to let go of this sin in my life. I want to be let go of by the world's pull and temptation. And that comes by preaching this gospel to your heart, singing the 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 Savior's songs into our hearts, the servant songs into our hearts and into our needy souls.